Last time on Have You Seen This Man? John Rufo had become an apparition. Even in my dream, I'm like, I just want to get a hold of him so I could talk to him. He runs away or he ignores me. Sightings of him were reported, but never nailed down. The Dodgers footage. Is that him? Is that Rufo or is it not? The woman he married started to wonder, who was this man she thought she knew? I think he was a pathological liar. He did lie a lot. I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? It's 1997, just two weeks until Christmas, and the man who knew John Rufo so well was locked up at the Petersburg Correctional Facility in Virginia. Ed Reiners was feeling the sting of his first holiday behind bars. I used to spend at least 10, 12 hours, and you would have loved it, decorating the house outside. On a recorded line from a prison phone, he talked wistfully with a friend about what he would be doing if he were on the outside. I had these Santa Clauses uh, with reindeer suspended from trees between the house. Everybody if miles around used to come to my house. I'd start at 10 in the morning. And finish but Ed Reiners had more to say, a lot more. For that, we turn again to our senior investigative reporter, Matthew Mosk. I'm back in Staten Island in the living room of the woman that John Rufo left behind when he went on the run in 1998, Linda Lauston. Remarried and raising a daughter, Linda landed here in a modest three-level fisherman's house in a working-class neighborhood called Stapleton Heights. Most days, She and her husband, Andy, head out by bus. They cross to Manhattan on the ferry and catch a second bus to get to work. Around the room, there are few, if any, reminders of the life that Linda led 25 years ago. I asked her if anything remained from that time. I don't know, just my furniture. Yeah. Linda climbed up on a chair to rummage through the back corners of an armoire to see what she could dig out. I have the prison tapes. Oh, you do? From Ed and FBI. Yeah. The outside world. Linda reached back on a high shelf and pulled out what looked like a small black canvas briefcase. As she brought it towards me, I could hear the rattle of plastic inside. I unzipped the cover and there, Neatly labeled were 28 cassette tapes. Other than Linda, Ed Reiners may be the person who knew the most about Rufo's life before he went on the run. Reiners was not only Rufo's partner in crime, a dashing Philip Morris executive whose life had skidded off the rails, But Linda believes Reiners was a toxic figure who manipulated her husband and sent him down a poisonous path. You know, I always thought he was a snake, like a snake. He was charming, but there was something, something about him. But Linda said Rufo admired Reiners right from the start. And he says, because Ed made it from the streets. Ed made it the hard way. Hmm. He coined the ladder the hard way. The two men became a sort of swindling odd couple. 
with Rufo, the bookish computer geek, and Reiners, the swashbuckling financier. Rufo, short and unassuming. Reiners, tall with thick hair, rolling through Manhattan with leading man looks. After his arrest, Reiner still carried some of that bravado. He talked about spinning the Project Star story into a Hollywood film. He thought actor Kurt Russell should play him on the big screen. He seemed to welcome the national attention. This is him going on TV in a beige prison jumpsuit to tell his tale to 60 Minutes. I actually thought we wouldn't get past phase one. We would have made the first uh, presentation. They would have said, well, we have to talk to the president or the CFO of the company or whatnot. And that didn't come about. They bought it. They made it easy. But as the years passed, all that faded. And when his 17-year sentence ended, he seemed to crave privacy. I tried several times to reach Reiner's, and in response, he sent an angry email, subject line, not interested. It's yesterday's news, he wrote. Leave me alone. While the Ed Reiner's of 2021 is resolved to stay quiet, the Reiner's from those early days, in the months after his arrest, is someone we can still hear from. That's because he agreed to become a key government witness against Rufo. And at the request of Rufo's lawyers, the Bureau of Prisons turned over nearly 400 hours of prison phone recordings. Let call. Caller, at the tone, please say your name. Ed Reiners. The prison tapes, some of which Linda held on to in the back of her living room armoire. They're on cassettes, so they're grainy. And the din of prison drones on behind Reiner's thick Long Island accent. But the recordings provide an unflinching look at Ed Reiner's downfall. From his $3 million Trump Palace condo to a crumbling century-old Virginia jail. The ceilings are falling in. There's rats running around. I sat down and started listening to the tapes. Not so much to learn about Reiner's, but to see if those recordings might shed fresh light on his co-conspirator, John Rufo. In the two years following Reiner's arrest in March of 1996, that partnership that made him and Rufo one of the country's most successful criminal tandems was wrenched apart. From his jail cell in Virginia, Reiner started working with the FBI. He hoped to become the star witness who would bring down Rufo. And he dreamt of seeing a decade or more shaved off his sentence. Back in New York, Rufo was waiting for his own trial with a 159 count fraud indictment hanging over his head. During this time, the computer firm CCS stayed open, but it was tense. I tracked down a number of employees from that period, most of whom knew nothing about Project Star while it was happening. They told me it was ugly. People were quitting, and legitimate clients, big law firms, established companies, they were racing for the exits. John von Onnen was a sales rep at the time. 
He had nothing to do with Rufo's crimes, and he told me how Rufo tried to spin the news of the investigation. What did he say? That uh, he's innocent. You know, Ed Reiner's is a fraud. Ed Reiner's lied to me. Ed was a liar. You know, this is all going to be cleared up. He put everything on um, Ed Reiner's. Rufo's criminal attorney, Jed Burstein, was piecing together a more elaborate defense. The case would have two pillars. One, pinning the scam on Ed Reiner's, and a second, resting on a more fantastical notion that the swindle was all part of Rufo's secret work for the U.S. government. Like those tales Rufo spun about CIA capers, and FBI pals, it all sounded far-fetched. Burstein had been guarded with me about how he planned to support the outlandish-sounding claims. Then one day in early 2021, he called with news. Those unclassified files I had asked for back in his office a year earlier, they had finally been delivered from storage. If I was willing to drive to his house in the New York suburbs, He'd be happy to let me see them. I pulled up to his door a few days later. Hey, how are you? Hey, Jed, how are you? Good, come on in. Burstein led me through a winding series of hallways and into an unfinished garage. There, stacked on the floor, were four cardboard boxes. They had the logo of Cityside Storage, a stenciled image of the Manhattan skyline that still included the Twin Towers. Each box was labeled in thick black marker with one word, Rufo. I didn't know yet if these boxes would hold answers to any of the riddles about Rufo's past, or as is so often the case, they would just raise more questions. But Burstein seemed convinced the contents would speak volumes. By the way, everything you have in these boxes, everything you need. Oh, great. John Rufo's crime was grand in scale, the Bernie Madoff of his day, and his disappearance, every bit as confounding as D.B. Cooper's. And yet, Rufo's garnered very little lasting attention, except from those closest to the case, like retired U.S. Marshal Barry Bowright, who told me he simply couldn't let go of all the old materials from the investigation. After my visit with Jed Burstein, I headed to Barry's house in Delaware to see what he had. Barry has sandy hair and the youthful, weathered look of someone comfortable at the beach. He's living out his retirement on a beautiful stretch of the mid-Atlantic coast. When I arrived, he led me into a garden house he had converted into a guest room and office. There he had a mini cassette recorder out on the table and he offered to walk me through some of his old interviews. Let's see if I can figure out how to rewind this. Can you describe what these are? These are, uh, what are they, micro cassettes? And this is probably the same recorder I used back then. Barry began playing an interview that he and his partner had conducted with one of Rufo's first clients, a manager at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. So you went to Woodlawn Cemetery to go talk to him. Mm -hmm. And do you remember why you were interested in talking to him? Well, we knew that CCS had done work for Woodlawn Cemetery. And 
when we heard cemetery and what he was doing for the cemetery, we're like, this sounds a lot like he could have been doing the exact same thing. You know, he's, the legit business plan is basically, he was selling them, you know, computer equipment. Same as with Project Star. Same with Project Star. Barry would discover that the cemetery officials who had given Rufo his start eventually suspected they were being cheated and that Rufo was charging them for computer equipment he wasn't actually supplying. The manager told Barry he never pegged Rufo as the type of guy who would scam them. Barry said he believed years before Project Star, this was where Rufo began to bend from a legitimate businessman into something more crooked. We were 100% confident that Rufo had, you know, he, this is where he learned how to do, this is where it all started. Of more interest to Barry though, was another resource the cemetery may have inadvertently offered to Rufo. He was, you know, his company was was building these databases for cemeteries. So Rufo had the had access to the identities of tens of thousands of dead people. He probably had multiple identities that he had established years earlier in the event that he was ever caught. So he could have in theory set up bank accounts and, oh, yeah. and gotten, you know, uh, government documents and all the things you would need to change identities before he ever exactly. disappeared. Exactly, and I think that that's what happened. I think that's exactly what he did. As he dug deeper, Barry says he started to see the first sharp outlines of the two John Rufos, a Dr. Jekyll, courteous and dull, and a Mr. Hyde, brazen and slippery. A cheat. I think Reiner's told us that he tried to be a big shot and, you know, go out and spend a ton of money on wine and dinners and, and mm. stuff, trying to impress people. But then you talk with Linda, it's like we had Chinese takeout like on Sundays and we're sitting on a 30 year old sofa that used to belong to my parents or something like that. It's like, where was all the money? You know, I, it was almost like he had two identities that he was living a whole, he had a whole, you know, another life. Barry heard more about this in an interview with one of the brokers who helped Rufo trade stocks. The broker never knew the millions they were risking had been stolen. At one point, she says Rufo talked all the time about being a millionaire who could blend in anywhere. The tape's in bad shape, but you can just make out what she's saying. As we listen to the scratchy microcassette recordings, Barry also picked up on those same curious whispers of FBI agents and Soviet nationals in Rufo's life. But that was, you know, so yeah, it was tough to tell what the broker was talking about when the tape jammed. Did she say Rufo had contacts in Kazakhstan? So I asked Barry, what was this? Was Rufo doing work for the government or not? The FBI never mentioned it. The U.S. Attorney's Office never mentioned it. It was only... But then Barry paused. During those early years, he also kept knocking into these claims. So he finally asked the FBI point blank, 
Had Rufo been working with them? So they're like, uh, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, we're like, anything that was relevant, maybe that would have been a good thing to tell us. They're like, oh, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. But if you look back at the history of the case, you know, the, the plea deal, him being allowed to voluntarily surrender, none of that makes any sense at all. It just leads you to believe that there's more going on than just a simple fraud case. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, I mean. That, but that, he had a prior relationship with the FBI. He did. At this point, they were two years into the manhunt and it would seem the U.S. Marshals were only just hearing about a key detail in Rufo's biography. Barry told me he was stunned the FBI had kept him and his partner in the dark. There was no reason for the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI to withhold that information from Rob and I. I mean, we both had top secret security clearances. But did they ever give you an explanation for why they didn't tell you? They said that they didn't think it was relevant. I mean, I assume when you're- Everything's relevant when you're looking for somebody. Every, I mean, one of the things that we always tell people is that everything is relevant. For two years following Ed Reiner's arrest, John Rufo remained free, insisting he was duped by Reiner's like everyone else. The FBI used these claims to prod Reiner's for evidence on Rufo drilling deeper during long phone calls, them in their offices in Virginia, and Reiner's on a recorded prison line. Let call. Caller, at the tone, please say your name. Ed Reiner's. Did you accept charges? Yes. Reiner's began laying out a clear picture of Rufo, not as the dupe who had been taken in by Reiner's, but as a con man at the top of his game. In Reiner's words, Rufo was a kingpin. Show him that John had six of these other identical schemes that I was just, yeah, I was a key player in this scheme, but he orchestrated all of them. Right, right. Then maybe he can... Of course, Reiner's figured that by helping the government build a case against Rufo, he could knock significant years off his own 17-year sentence. But he also seemed intent on making it clear. Rufo was an operator. Yes, you know, what's, why is it important how I became involved with John? Because I want the judge to realize that this guy brought you in, that this guy has done this stuff before. Yeah. And I don't, you know, you said he had done this uh, yeah, several times. Yeah, several times. I want the judge to realize that you're not the mastermind this guy was. Rufo may have publicly pushed the notion that Reiner's led Project Star, but behind bars, Reiner's was pushing back. Like when an article in a Virginia newspaper quoted Rufo's lawyer pinning the whole scam on Reiner's. Sure. It's going to be, I like the last, the last sentence in that article. So she had it quoted by Bernstein in October. He was by Reiner's. Oh, yeah. Well, he's going to have to eat those words. I hope so. Wow. Reiners told the FBI what he knew about other schemes Rufo had cooking, like one involving a mysterious partner named Bruce Gregory, who was supposedly a New York Union official leasing computers from Rufo's firm. Bruce Gregory was a name that surfaced repeatedly on letters and on the signature line of contracts. But Reiners told his lawyers he never met him. 
I'd like to know who is this Bruce Gregory? Is there such a person? Uh, I don't think that I When you stacked up Rufo's history of scheming, Reiners thought the picture was clear. We said all along, I was a supporting play. You know, why did it take him six months? Given the evidence against Rufo, Reiners believed his one-time partner would soon be sitting right where he was, behind bars. But he also knew Rufo. And as Rufo's trial date neared, Reiners started warning people. They better keep an eye on him. First, he mused about it to his lawyer. He's gonna have, I'm surprised now, based on all this he wouldn't run. If I was him, I'd run now. Even more stunning, Reiner shared these premonitions with the FBI. Even before Rufo was released with only an ankle monitor, one of the FBI agents asked Reiners if he thought Rufo would try and make a run for it. I think it's a, if he's getting real nervous, I think there's a possibility, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would I put it this way, I keep an eye out. If you haven't, then I would keep an eye. I mean, I think all along he might have been waiting to shake out and just see what was gonna happen now with the reality. It was April 18th, 1998, two years after Reiners first went to jail when the government made a surprise announcement. Just days before Rufo was supposed to go on trial, he and the prosecutors had inked a deal. Rufo would plead guilty, and there would be no need for Reiner's testimony, and no reduction in his 17-year sentence. Reiner's sounded crushed. On the phone with FBI agent Jack Mullaney, he tried to make sense of his fate. I mean, in spite of what I did, I'm not a bad guy. You know what I mean? I mean, I did something stupid. I was wrong. But I mean, you know, I used to try to keep my nose clean. You get into something stupid, you didn't try to hurt anybody. Yeah. And, you know, you wind up with this. I'm just trying to get my life back in order. Mullaney, one of the FBI agents who spent two years building the case against Rufo, said he also was stunned. Ed Reiners had done everything he could have asked from a witness while Rufo stonewalled. Now, the two men would receive nearly identical sentences. Mullaney admits he wondered, how had Rufo pulled this off? I was devastated when they told me Rufo was pleading out and gonna get sentenced to the same amount. It made no sense to me. Something was going on there that we did not know about. If there were clues about what convinced prosecutors to cut a deal with Rufo, rather than forge ahead with a trial that might yield a bigger sentence and send a stronger message, they might be somewhere in the files that Judd Burstein had used to prepare Rufo's defense. In those file boxes at his suburban home, you could see he had collected volumes of material. So this is all stuff that would have been presented in court, like the yeah. financials and the... Yeah, I just want to make sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. These are all, you can have these, these are all the trial exhibits. Right. All the financial stuff. Before letting me look at them, Burstein carefully pieced through the files to remove anything that might be marked classified. But what remained, he said, would make it clear. Obviously, there was something going on with the Russians, okay? A lot of that was classified. Yeah, a lot of that was classified. On the other hand, you can assume that as a responsible lawyer, if there was stuff in there that I thought really contradicted the, the underlying defense, 
you know, I wouldn't have gone forward with it. Right. So, you know, certainly. As I began to look through the files, I saw there was a letter from federal prosecutors. They were responding to Burstein's demands for records of Rufo's work for the FBI. They wrote that they had to remove, quote, certain symbol references, file numbers, code names, and code words from pertinent Rufo files. I mean, the defense was real. He was plainly doing stuff for the Russians because there wouldn't have been all... There were still so many questions. Why, for instance, had Burstein's files included copies of the criminal indictment of Earl Pitts? That was the guy Linda mentioned to me, whose prosecution was being led by one of the very same lawyers working the Rufo case. You know, there's a limit in terms of what I can tell you. What did any of this have to do with Project Star? Prosecutors argued nothing. In one filing, marked as unclassified, they asked the judge to block Burstein from raising it at all. They said, quote, Mr. Rufo cannot bootstrap his past, totally unrelated knowledge of a classified FBI foreign intelligence initiative to his defense. In court, the prosecutors went even further. About Rufo's work for the FBI, one prosecutor said, if it is ever deemed relevant to this case, I will eat those files. Still, now it was clear. Rufo's boasts about secret government work, they were not all puffery. Barry Bowright suspected it all along. And the FBI was, was basically, I wouldn't say using him or he was using them, but they were working together. There was more in those old files. Federal investigators had drilled into Rufo's finances. And everything Reiners had been saying emerged in black and white. Rufo was not just running one con, Project Star. He was operating a web of other schemes through an array of corporate shell companies. He definitely knew what he was doing. I mean, he was, he was a good criminal. Uh, I mean, he was, he was a swindler. The Department of Justice tracked one of the firms called R&R Sim Group to an account in Switzerland. Another entity, Worldwide Regional Exports, was selling shipments of diapers in Russia and investing in a Turkish eyeglass company. Yet another firm, San Lean Leasing Company, appeared to have an office in Puerto Rico. Linda later helped me make sense of some of the company names he used like one called Linan Systems. Linan Systems, did you ever hear? Linan. Linan? Yeah. What's that? Linda Ann. So they use my name. Her name, Linda Ann. But what was he doing with them? What were those companies? I don't even know. And where were all these companies really based? The feds tracked one of them to a mailbox at Grand Central Station and another to a small rental space on Fifth Avenue called Prime Office Centers. The one based there was purported to be run by Bruce Gregory, that mysterious partner Ed Reiners had heard about. The receptionist at Prime Office Centers told the FBI she remembered Bruce Gregory, and she described him, stocky, balding, five foot five, 
with a mustache and glasses. The agents showed her a photo array and she spotted him right away. Bruce Gregory was John Rufo. Jack Mullaney told me he'd never seen anything like it. This is the guy in mind. You know, I, I think he believed he was you know, some sort of a secret agent. Deception was everywhere. When the FBI went to interview a supposed business partner of Rufo's, a man who went by Robert Atkins, they found another fake, an old friend of Reiner's named Wayne. Wayne told them he took 500 bucks to pose as Robert Atkins. For attorney Judd Burstein, all this subterfuge made it harder to craft what he called a good faith defense, where he could argue that Rufo thought Project Star was just one more secret government operation. Exactly. That, the difficulty was is that a good faith defense only, you know, I said the minute that the, the jury finds that you willfully lied about something, you know, that's material in terms of the facts of the case, right. the whole good faith defense is lost. It was this problem, Burstein told me, that ultimately persuaded him to pursue a plea deal. It cost his client 17 years, but he would face considerably more at trial. And with all these lies, he simply could not go before a jury. You know, rarely do I have clients who fool me that badly. He, he, did I believe necessarily that his story was true? One of my mentors said that uh, a trial is a search, criminal trial is a search for the truth, but the, um, the criminal defense lawyer is not part of the search party. Those ugly details could have spelled disaster for Rufo's prospects at trial, but they had the opposite implication for the U.S. Marshals, who now had the mind-boggling job of finding him. Rarely, if ever, have they chased a fugitive with so many false identities and companies and bank accounts at his disposal. We always thought that the way we were going to find Rufo was to find the money. With so many names and companies, finding that money would be much harder than they ever imagined. Buried within those old files and recordings, one other detail caught the attention of investigators. Remember that woman on the damaged microcassette recording that Barry Bowright had saved? She said something interesting about a proposition Rufo made to her in the months before he vanished. He asked her to run away with him to Sicily. I'd heard some of the rumors about Rufo's crude habit of making romantic overtures, but there was something different about this, having nothing at all to do with his conduct. It was what he said. This would not be the only time we'd hear Rufo talking about Italy. It was where his grandparents were from. And Linda told us he even explored Italian citizenship. And then there was something else, something she discovered in the pocket of a coat he had left behind when he fled. 
I found scribble notes in his suit pocket after he went to the last hearing in the closet. It looked like he took the name of these three barbers that he used to go to since he was a teenager. And uh, one of them moved to Italy. When I called one of those barbers at their shop, they told me that, yeah, John said he's going to go, you guys are going to go to Italy soon, and he wanted to look up my brother. Italy and that barber would only grow in significance as the investigation moved forward. But if Rufo had harbored a secret plan to flee to Italy, one person he didn't trust with that secret was Ed Reiners. In 400 hours of prison phone calls, he never mentioned it once. When the U.S. Marshals start focusing on the financial records of John Rufo's company, they discover some very unusual activity. After the break. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. I'm in North Carolina, about 30 miles outside of Charlotte. It's a muggy summer day in 2021. And out my window, I can see the landscape changing. I'm easing into the rural south, where stately mansions mingle with fields of corn and switchgrass. I'm just going to come in on foot, see how that goes. As I dash across a two-lane road, it dawns on me. This would be a very strange destination for a Brooklyn-born grifter like John Rufo even if he did occasionally enjoy trying on a southern drawl. It's not a bad idea. I thought of North Carolina as a top retirement destination for cops, not somewhere a Wall Street swindler would run. And yet, here I was, armed with an age progression photograph 
to ask the central question in the ongoing manhunt. Hi, I'm with ABC News. I was wondering, have you seen this man? Does he look familiar to you? My path to this point began last year as I followed Deputy U.S. Marshals Danielle Shimchik and Chris Luer down a winding rabbit hole of shell companies, corporate accounts, and mail drops. We met up on a cold winter morning in a parking lot under the Dulles Airport flight path. To get here, I wound past rows of 18-wheelers and into one of the scores of nondescript industrial parks that dot the D.C. suburbs. Nowhere is there a sign for the U.S. Marshals, only an unmarked tinted glass door with a high-tech security keypad. Yeah, what is this building? Do, can you guys say what this is? Is this like a secret lair? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's way to put it. One we don't really like put out. Inside was a sleek suite of offices filled with deputies. Down a hallway, beyond a command center and a communications room, we met up with two of the most seasoned financial investigators in the agency, Hank Martin and Katie Kent. Katie, would you mind sitting here next to Chris sure. just so everybody's a little closer to the Yeah, absolutely. Does this work here, Matt? Hank and Katie are both young, and they don't look like auditors. Hank was hunched over his laptop in a baggy sweatshirt with a trim red beard, his eyes barely visible under the brim of a trucker's cap with an American flag patch on the front. Katie had her blonde hair tied back tight in a bun, casual in a goose-down vest. They sat around a conference table with Chris and with Danielle, who was thumbing through a stack of white binders labeled Rufo, comma, John. So basically, you, I mean, you saw our, our Rufo room, essentially. So full of boxes, um, evidence from the original case. So bank statements, credit cards, financial reports, checks, stuff from the cemeteries. Um, and basically what we're trying to do is just recreate the whole scheme all over again. So hopefully our financial folks can um, come up with a pattern and maybe... Katie and Hank spent days going through the stacks of materials. And today they wanted to discuss something that caught their eye. Katie held up one of the binders. Because the one I want to talk to you about, this this one, there's only one thing in there I want to talk to you guys about. It's about the 401ks. The retirement accounts from Rufo's computer company, CCS. There was a fair amount of money in this fund, but unlike other Rufo accounts, this one wasn't seized by the FBI. As Katie scanned a list of account holders, not all the names on the ledger looked familiar. None of these names besides Rufo and his wife look familiar. And there is a ton of names. My understanding was that not this many people worked for him. If you want to look at the top and just see if any of these names sound familiar to you guys. Danielle pulled up a list of CCS employees on her laptop. And slowly, they began scrolling through the lists and comparing the names. There's Linda. She's that one. There's John. Before. And then something odd. Why do you have a 401k account called Fourth 95? And that's weird. The room was quiet as Hank ran a check on his laptop. Fourth 96 account with the social security number on it? Yeah. 
That social security number belongs to someone who has been reported as deceased. It was around this time that Chris and Danielle began nurturing a theory about John Rufo. After his escape, all the attention of the FBI and the U.S. Marshals was focused on the millions that Rufo had borrowed from banks through Project Star. There was about $13 million unaccounted for, and that was the bankroll that warranted attention. But maybe they were looking at the wrong pot of money. There was other money that had never been accounted for. That's money we know of, we have a trail of it, and that may be a lot more relevant than we actually think, as opposed to this mysterious millions, which, you know, we've, it's always just been kind of assumed that Rufo had it tucked away, which we have very good reason to believe. Yeah, it's interesting. You could see the FBI spent all that time auditing that, the invested money, but maybe there was other money that he was actually making use of that, you know, they weren't looking in the right place. And it's sexy to look for the millions of dollars, but when you're looking at the low-level counts with, you know, a couple thousands of dollars, that may have been more relevant than initially thought. One small detail gave Chris and Danielle a sense that 401k accounts could be important. About a week before Rufo went on the run, he visited a bank to make a strange request. He wanted signing authority for his company's retirement funds. One of the former CCS employees that I interviewed, who had nothing to do with Project Star, remembered when this happened. Peter Mugavero was a computer specialist there. He and a group of colleagues had filed a lawsuit against Rufo just weeks before he fled. They had alleged that Rufo was failing to pay them a promised bonus. I spoke to Peter by phone about what he remembered. In the week or two before he disappeared, he had gone in and gotten signing authority for all the 401k plans. Is that, do you think, what, what, what? That, that's, that's what I, that's what I had heard. That he raided that. It was, it, it was originally someone else in charge of it. Huh. If somebody in the office had that uh, ability or that privilege. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he got himself put on. So once you found out he fled with all this money and it disappeared, that's it? That, there, there's that's nothing it. you can do? What, what, what do you sue? You sue, you sue a ghost. Now, as Hank and Katie dug deeper into the list of retirement account holders, they were increasingly convinced something wasn't right. For starters, two of the supposed employees had social security numbers that were in sequential order. Oh yeah, that one's 0321 and this one's 0322. Come on. Look at the two socials. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wait, what was That's how I'd make up a social. <laughs> one, one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> one, Katie two, three. said she wondered if this might be part of some other Rufo scheme. Or maybe. These social security numbers were part of his escape plan. When he went on the run, I would say, I would lean towards that's going on the run money. Right. Good point. But he could also, that entire time, he could have been dripping money into an account for going on the run money. Right. Then Chris realized the names on these bizarre accounts were for people who died decades ago. 68, yeah. Date of birth is in the 1800s. Oh! That's something you'd find in a oh, cemetery. 
for both of those, actually, the date of birth is in the 1800s. 1800s. Some really old people working in their own computers. <laughs> Never too late to start a 401k. <laughs> Hank continued digging into these two names. Then he turned his computer around to show the others what he had found. Okay, and if you look, that is the address that they're at. Oh, These recipients of retirement money from John Rufo's company, who both appeared to be long dead when the payments were made, now appeared to be living in a million-dollar home in North Carolina. And the name of the street? Shrek the Gold Lane. That's a nice house. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't mind living in that. Yeah. Interesting. For somebody who had a social security number associated with him. Yeah. In that account that's from a dead person that was obviously used, and the person she's with obviously has another social security number associated with that's that dead. person. That's dead, yeah. Living in that house. Living in a 7,000 square foot home. My drive onto Strike the Gold Lane was interrupted almost immediately by a high iron fence. This community of stately mansions was gated. So I pulled my rental car across the street alongside an empty lot and crossed over to the entrance. Did John Rufo live beyond that gate? All I could do was wait as cars approached and ask. Hi. Hi, my name is Matthew Musk. I'm a reporter with ABC News. I'm doing a podcast about a long missing fugitive, this man. I showed the driver the U.S. Marshal flyer with the age-enhanced photo of Rufo. And there was a lead that put him on Strike the Gold Lane, which is this, I guess. Oh, I'm just wow. curious, have you seen this man? Does he look familiar to you? He does not. Doesn't look like somebody who lives here in the neighborhood? I have not seen that gentleman, no. Have you seen this man? Does he look familiar to you? I have not. Never seen that person, unfortunately. Okay. I have not seen this person, no, I don't. Doesn't look familiar? No, does not look familiar at all. Finding John Rufo was not going to be as simple as this. At this moment, Chris and Danielle still believe the trail of money could point them in the right direction. But as with everything else about a case this old and complex, the hunt will not be easy. Do you guys have any sense of what you're learning or what you're able to learn from the finances? Are they complicated? Are they simple? Like, what's your sense so far? I'd say, and I think Chris would agree, they're complicated. It's like every time... They have more work ahead to see if these retirement funds maybe paid for Rufo's escape. There was one detail about those bogus accounts that did not escape Chris and Danielle's attention. Those long-deceased account holders? They were Italian. If John Rufo did board a flight at JFK Airport that day in 1998, there was one destination at the top of his list. But how did he get out of the country? And who? might be able to help him. John Rufo left behind his account of his secret government work, the Rufo Diaries. 
That's some shady that went on with the FBI. And the U.S. Marshals develop a new lead from relatives of an old Rufo friend. And so he says, yeah, I, th I, I think I know where he lives. So he knows where Rufo lives. That's what he said. Next time on Have You Seen This Man? If you have any information that can help the U.S. Marshals find this man, call 1-877-WANTED-2. That's 1-877-926-8332. Or send a tip from your phone through the U.S. Marshal app called USMS Tips. That's USMS Tips. And if you haven't already, follow this podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Let us know what you think with a rating and review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News Investigative Unit. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Field production by Alex Hosenball. Additional reporting by Kate Holland. Produced by Susie Liu and Kate Holland. Mixing and mastering by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Aaron Ferrer, Louis Millman, Leighton Schneider, Aaron Katursky, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohen, Chris Vlasto and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley, Matthew Mosk, and Liz Alessi are executive producers. I'm Sunny Hostin.